Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Jeremy Fuller has a vibrant ministry and has been used of God all across the country. He's the vice president of the God's Missionary Conference of Churches. He preached this message at the Shelbyville, Indiana Bible Holiness Church in 2015. I know you'll enjoy this message that he titles, The Prodigal Son. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on, and on, This has been a special week. God has met with us. And that makes all the difference in the world. When God comes. When His Spirit makes Jesus real to us. And lifts us up in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I thought the other night as we were praying around the altar. I thought where in the world could you go? For a scene like this. Where could you go? And then as we were singing this morning. I looked down here at these sisters right here in the second row. I thought, how do you explain this? How do you explain this? You women are beautiful. God's grace has made you beautiful. Amen. Uh, we were in the nursing home yesterday to visit would-be Sister Mildred, I guess. And I thought, I looked at all of those people in there. And, of course, Sister Gail was there. And I thought, how do you explain this? How do you explain this? These women are, are different into their 90s, and they're different. They're beautiful. They're sweet. They're intelligent. They've lived fulfilling lives. How do you explain this? And as I sat here this morning, and I watched the tears run down our sister's face, I thought the only explanation is the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's the only explanation. I want to preach this morning, if God will help me, from the Queen of Parables. You know what a parable is. A parable is a story that may or may not have happened, but Jesus told it in such a way as to illustrate illustrate some spiritual truth, some knowledge about God's kingdom and about himself and about his heavenly father. Jesus was a master storyteller. And of all of the stories that Jesus ever told, I think Luke chapter number 15 is the greatest of all of the stories and as you're turning there this morning, I just want to give you some, some background here. We have, in this chapter, we have three lost things. We have a lost sheep, we have some lost silver, and we have a lost son. And of the three stories, it's the last of the three that specifically I want to look at this morning. Well, I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. Luke's Gospel 15, let's stand together and then for a word of prayer. Jesus, Jesus is going to tell some stories before he does. The, the inspired penman, Dr. Luke, gives us the context. He gives us the setting. He said, then drew 
near unto him all the publicans and the sinners, the tax collectors, those who had betrayed their own fellow countrymen and begun to work for Rome. And he said in the sinners, the outcasts, the people that were not allowed on, into respectable positions within the culture, within the society. They drew near to hear him. Aren't you thankful that, that Jesus is of such nature that, it's, that when you know you're a sinner and you know you're an outcast and you know you're, you're on the wrong side of the tracks, it's okay to draw near to Jesus. And then it says, And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Now you have to understand, Jesus is about to create a story that may or may never have happened, but he's about to to depict his hearers in the story that he's going to tell. We know in the story of this lost boy, this lost son, we call it the parable of the prodigal son. I'm not not sure that we've named it right. Because I don't think that the focus is really on the son, the prodigal son. Because in this story we we have the... Two classes of hearers. We have class number one, the publicans and the sinners. And they are depicted in the younger son, and I call him the son of disgrace. But then we have class two, the Pharisees and the scribes. And he's depicted in the elder son, and I call him the son of no grace. But then we have another character in the story, and he is the focus of the story. All of the other Cast members are just supporting roles. Because at the center of this parable is a beautiful portrait of our Heavenly Father. It is a beautiful portrait of the God of all grace. And so it's Him this morning that I want us to consider. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we ask this morning that You would shut us in with Your sacred presence. That You would set the angels of God at the four corners of this sanctuary with swords drawn to do battle with the enemy of our souls. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against spiritual wickedness in high places, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. But we know this morning that you're praying for us. We know this morning that you have an interest in us. We know this morning that you want your gospel preached in all the world, to every creature. And we believe the Holy Spirit will come and help the gospel to be preached. And we're trusting you this morning to wash thy servant in the blood of thy son, Father. And that you would send the Holy Ghost upon this crowd anew and afresh to quicken hearts, to make our hearts burn within us as the Lord Jesus Christ would come and break the bread of heaven to our souls. We pray for his help and blessing in Jesus the Christ's name. Amen and amen. You may be seated. There's a famous story about a famous mayor, the mayor of New York City, Fiorella LaGuardia, who when he was mayor of New York City during the worst days of the Great Depression and all through World War II, He was called by his adoring New Yorkers the little flower because he was only five feet, four inches and he always wore a carnation on his lapel. He was a colorful character who used to ride the New York City fire trucks, raid speakeasies with the police department, take entire orphanages out to baseball games and whenever the New York newspapers went on strike, He went on the radio to read the Sunday funnies to the kids. 
One bitterly cold night in January of 1935, the mayor turned up at a night court to serve, which served the poorest ward of the city. Mayor LaGuardia dismissed the judge for the evening and took over the bench himself. Within a few minutes, a tattered old woman was brought before him charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She told the mayor that her daughter's husband had deserted the family, her daughter was sick, her two grandchildren were starving to death. It's a real bad neighborhood, said the grocery store owner from whom the bread had been stolen. She's got to be punished. We've got to teach the other people in this neighborhood a lesson. The kind mayor sighed. He turned to the woman and said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. Ten day, ten dollars or ten days in jail. But even as he pronounced the sentence, the mayor was already reaching into his famous sombrero saying, here is the ten dollar fine which I now remit. And furthermore... I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. So the following day, the New York City newspapers reported that $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered old lady who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren 50 cents of that amount being contributed by the red-faced grocery store owner while some 70 petty criminals, people with traffic violations and New York City policemen, each of whom had just paid 50 cents for the privilege of doing so, gave the mayor a standing ovation. Now, friend, that's grace. That's grace on a human level. That's grace of coming from a civil leader. But in this story this morning, we have the story of the grace of an almighty God who looks down on guilty sinners who have no way to pay the fine, have no way to make themselves right with himself. And he comes to our aid. He comes to our rescue. And the first way that he does it, we don't even realize that he's doing it. But in this story, we have a a young man who left his father, who took his inheritance, who went to the far country, who squandered his living, squandered his fortune, With riotous living, we don't know the details, but we know when all was spent, when we know when the lights were out and the friends were gone, we know that God was at work, that there was a sovereign hand that was reaching down into his life, and it comes in the form of a hog pen. This boy is sent by his own unwise decisions to to go to a citizen of that country and to offer to feed swine. We're told that a famine arose, a mighty famine in that land. You know, Jacobus Arminius was a was the father, one of the fathers of, of what we believe, doctrinally speaking. And Jacobus Arminius coined a phrase, provenient grace. Grace that goes before grace. 
grace that before you ever have an inkling of an understanding of God's love and God's desire to have a relationship with you, that God is sovereignly at work in your life to bring you and to bring me to a place of repentance. And without that grace, you could not repent. You would not repent. But the grace of God is reaching into places, reaching into hearts, reaching into homes, reaching into nations in a way that can only be explained by the sovereign, loving wisdom of an all-powerful God. And so this famine brings this boy to the hog pen. God creates the scenario. God creates the condition. God creates the circumstances whereby it becomes more rational to look up than to look down. To look back to the father's house than to look to the fields of, uh, of promiscuity, of, of riotous living, of, of even of death and suicide. He creates the scenario. He fixes the circumstances in such a way that we can come to ourselves, come to our senses. Senses quickened by the blessed Holy Ghost. And we're told that this boy began to talk to himself. It says in the scripture that he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, but no man gave to him. Now friend, I I told you last night, I believe it was, I, I lived on a hog farm. Central Pennsylvania, I knew what it was like to feed hogs and little pigs be born and cut their tails and cut their teeth, you know, and give shots and do all of those things to those hogs and feed them all the... Let me tell you this. There is no stink like hog stink. When you go into the hog barn, it gets on your hair. It gets on your clothes. You don't have to be in there more than two minutes, more than 30 seconds until that smell, until that stench becomes a part of you. And the only way to get rid of it is to wash your clothes or take a shower because it's on you. We're told that this boy began to say to himself, I will arise and go to my father and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. If you want to know what repentance is this morning, read those words again. I will arise. I will say to my father, Father, I have sinned against thee and against heaven. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me one of thy hired servants. That is the spirit. That is the attitude of repentance. That is the disposition of one who has come to his senses and is ready to come to the heavenly father. Now this morning I want to give you some thoughts about this father of grace and I shall begin with the disposition of the father's grace. I want us to think for a little while this morning what is God really and truly like in his disposition. We all have a disposition that makes us unique. If I can pick on our singers this morning just a little bit, Sister Mary and Sister Penny are two separate individuals. Sister Mary is an upfront person. She's good with talking in public and inspiring us with her words and the way she says it. Sister Penny, she just likes to hide behind the piano. She's content with that. I don't, I don't think she's ever 
probably bartered with Mary and, and Judy to get up front. You know, let me preach tonight. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see that has happened. Our dispositions are all unique. Some of us are loud. Some of us are quiet. Some of us are outgoing. Some of us are reserved. They tell me there are four types of dispositions. There's the choleric. There's the sanguine. There's the melancholy. And there's phlegmic or the, or the phlegmatic. You know, it's interesting how those, those four things combine. And if you would ask me to what I am, as far as from a psychological standpoint, I would say I'm, I'm probably a, a bad mixture of choleric and melancholy. I mean, when I get depressed, I get with the program. I'm like David in the Psalms. I'm either soaring in the heavens with the eagles or I'm gnashing out someone's teeth. I'm a bad mixture. I'm, I'm not blaming it on God, but I'll tell you what. I, when I come together, it was a bad mixture. I'm bossy. Look at my daughter. She's in full agreement with that. You know, but we all have a disposition. God has a disposition. And in the Bible this morning, we're told about God's disposition through this story. Do you know what God's like this morning? He's exactly like the Father in this story. And His disposition towards poor, wretched, lost, dirty sinners is exactly like this Father in this story. We find it in verse number 20. It says that when the boy arose and came to his father, listen to this, but... When he was a great way off. Now listen, let's not go past that too quickly because there is the first window into the heart of the Father. That implies that the Father could not get this boy off his mind. There are some things that we just want to forget. There are situations and relationships and scenarios we just want to put out of our mind. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to consider it. It's too hurtful. It's too painful. But as pained as the Father's heart was, he, had, he couldn't help himself. He went down to the end of the drive Day after day, week after week, we don't know how long the boy was gone, but the father couldn't forget his boy. And I want to tell you this morning, if you're here and you're a sinner and you're not, you've not been saved or maybe you're backslidden this morning, I want you to know God cannot get you off his mind. He's committed to, your, to his relationship with you. And though you've separated the relationship, though you've wandered away, though you've gone into the far country and are squandering all the precious gifts that God has given you. God can't get you off his mind. And so he comes to the end of your drive. He comes to the end of your lane. And he says to himself, maybe today is the day that my lost boy, my lost girl will come back to me. God won't force you to do it. God won't come out there into your mess and pick you up and force you to come home. He's a perfect gentleman. He has given you the privilege of choice. He's given you a free will either to choose him or reject him. But friend, what a consolation this morning to know that the God of heaven is not somewhere off in the corner of the universe aloof and upset and angry and turned his back on you. No 
sir. No, ma'am. Our God, his disposition requires him, compels him to come to the end of your path day after day, week after week. Oh, friend, he's longing. He's looking. And while he was a great way off, he saw him. That tells me he was looking for him. I believe we have a God this morning who can't get poor, lost, dirty sinners off his mind because he loves them. He loves them. He's invested in them. He sent the famine. Amen. God's disposition this morning. Let me tell you further about God's disposition. The Bible says that when he saw him, something happened to him. Something happened to that father. The moment he laid eyes on that boy, the Bible says he had compassion on him. Something welled up in the heart of this father. I'll never forget the first time I felt that towards my child. Brenna was just a little girl, couldn't talk yet, very little, maybe one, maybe one and a half. And I come home one evening and Brenna had fallen down the basement steps and she had gotten an awful bloody lip and oh, her face was all horrible. I can't explain it, but when I saw my little girl in that condition, something welled inexplicably up inside me. It was such Passion. Oh, it was such pathos. It was such feeling. My little child had been injured that day and she was hurt. God hasn't. God hasn't a compassion that is unmatched by humanity. It dwells up within him. He sees sinners in their lost condition. Listen, there was nothing attractive about this boy. He had come from the hog pen. He smelled like a hog. He had lived like a hog. His garment, no doubt, was tattered. He was barefoot. He had squandered. There wasn't one thing within this boy that should merit the father's love, the father's affection, the father's compassion. But my my friend, God doesn't take us based on our merits. God doesn't take us based on what we can bring to him. God opens his arms to us based on the fact that you were created in his image. He, he, you belong to him by right of creation and, and his redemptive purpose in your life. He's reaching for you. He's longing for you. He wants to save you, reconcile you, and bring you into relationship with himself. This father had compassion on his boy. The Bible says he ran. He ran. Dr. Robbie Zacharias has helped me on that more than anybody else I've ever heard preach. He said that you have to understand that in the East, in the East, in that culture, the most undignified thing that a man could do was to run. No one, no male, no man ever ran anywhere in public. The most undignified, unthinkable thing you could do, culturally speaking, was to run. Furthermore, in this culture, in this culture, it, it, you just didn't express emotion and feelings. Robbie Zacharias said that his father never kissed him or hugged him until his mother's death. I can imagine that. I hug my children. I kiss them right on the mouth if they let me. I love them. But we're talking about a culture and Jesus telling a story in a culture where this is, this is so unthinkable. You, you don't do this. But, but this, this father was so overcome that he's willing to set the tradition aside. <laughs> he's going to set the tradition aside. 
because something so momentous was taking place. And the Bible says he ran towards him. I read about an artist who had read this story and wanted to put it into a painting. And so he, he painted a picture and he took it to his best friend to show him the picture. And his friend looked at the picture and said, oh my, oh my. He said, you better read it again. He had painted a picture of the father standing with his arms crossed, kind of an arrogant, self-righteous look on his face of, well, it's about time. He said, you better read it again. And so he read it again and paid close attention to the details of the story, and he painted another picture. And this time he painted a picture and brought it to his best friend, and he said that the father was completely changed. He said he was actually running with outstretched hands and outstretched arms. His big old coat was just flowing in the breeze behind him. And it was clear from the depiction that this father, with every ounce and every fiber of his being, wanted to get to the boy. And and then he he stopped and he said, oh, wait a minute. He said, you made a mistake. He said, this father clearly has two separate sandals on. Oh, he said, that wasn't a mistake. He said, I did it on purpose. He said, he couldn't find a matching pair. And so he just grabbed what was ever closest and took off. He said, I, he said, I think you finally captured the essence of the story. You, you've heard preachers say, maybe, and maybe I've been guilty of saying it, that if you take one step in God's direction, He'll take one step in your direction. Bad theology. Bad theology. If you wiggle in God's direction and get within sight, He's running to you. Amen. He's coming at you as fast as He can. He'll move heaven and earth to get to you. If He can send something in your will and in your heart and in your disposition that says, Lord, I humble myself. I repent of my arrogancy. God is moving heaven and earth to get to where you're at. Hallelujah. Thank God He is. That's the kind of God we serve this morning. My Bible says that when he got to him, he fell on his neck and he kissed him. He placed the kiss of reconciliation on his brow. Now we read in this story, not only about the father's disposition, all of those things rise up out of the father's disposition. But beyond that, we have the demonstration of the father's grace. This takes it beyond his disposition. This takes it beyond who he is to what he does. And we read here that as the boy began his rehearsed speech, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. In other words, I have forfeited all my rights. I have no right to anything that you have. I have squandered it all. I have forfeited everything. And the father doesn't even respond. He says, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. I don't know whether you've ever gone to bed hungry or not. But I'm going to tell you this. An old saint, many hundreds of years ago, wrote this about his own experience and about the experience of watching God's children. He said, I was young, and now I'm old. He said, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken, or his seed out begging for bread. My friend, God the Father wants to make you secure in his family. 
And the first thing he's going to do is wrap his best robe around your naked shoulders, your smelly, stinky shoulders, and, and to say to everybody in the family and, and to all of the servants that this boy is still special. Even though he has sinned and forfeited his natural rights, he's disgraced himself. He, he says, I'm going to demonstrate that there is a place for him in our family. There is a place for him in our home. He's not going to be a hired servant. I won't hear this, this nonsense he's talking about. He's still my son. Yes, he was lost. Yes, he went away. But you have the privilege to stay away if you want and be lost forever. Or you have the privilege to come home if you want. Amen. That's the wonderful message of this story that yes, you can go away. And yes, you can stay away. But if you want to, you can come back home. As long as there's life, there's breath. There's hope. The demonstration. He said, I I put a ring on his hand. You know, that ring was a special ring. It was the ring that gave that boy authority to transact the family business. You know, I worked in the prison system for a number of years, in and out of the county prison and into other prisons, and I got to know a lot about the probationary system. and, 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 you know... Legally speaking, there's some, there's some great wisdom to the probationary system, you know. Because most of these guys that, that get out or gals that get out, but most of them haven't really changed. Some of them might have gotten jailhouse religion, but, but most of them, they haven't really changed. They can't be trusted. Some cases, there's exceptions, of course. But, but you know, have all of these rules and all of these requirements. And, and basically, the government is saying, the civil or county government, the state government, the federal government is saying, we don't trust you. We're going to watch you. We're going to hold you accountable. And there's some wisdom in that. But friend, listen, that's not how God operates. The moment you get regenerated, the moment you get born again of God's Spirit, the moment He comes and forgives your sins, He puts a ring on your hand and He says, you can transact business in this kingdom. You can get down on your knees and you can pray and God is obligated to answer your prayers if it's according to His will and it's asked in the name of Jesus and your faith is complete and perfect towards Him. Friend, you don't have to wait six weeks, six months or six years to come to the place where you can be a Christian that has power with God and can transact business in the family. He puts a ring on your hand and says whatever you have need of, son. If you have to go down to the hardware store and get supplies, if you have to buy fence posts or feed for the horses, whatever it is, just put it on our account. Amen. We'll pay for it. Amen. We're not going to govern that. You just go down there and you just, you just pick up the, your responsibilities and help carry the load here and whatever we need to get the job done. Just go down there and, and stamp that little signature on the, on the bill there and, and we'll pay for it. The treasurer will send a check. Amen. That's what God's inviting every one of us to do. If we've repented and we've come into God's family, we can transact business in the kingdom of God. You can pray and expect that God hears your prayers and answers your prayers. He said he put shoes on his feet. The father was saying, I hear what you're saying about this servant stuff. But I don't like it. See, the servants went barefoot. The servants went barefoot. You didn't have shoes unless you were a a son or a daughter. That separated you from the servants. Shoes were expensive. I'm just telling you what I've read. I wasn't there. I didn't live in that time frame. But you couldn't get down to the Dollar General or, or to the Salvation Army or to the Goodwill store and get them for a dollar. 
But he said, I want shoes on your feet, boy. I want shoes on your feet. I want everybody that comes on these grounds to know that you're my son. Oh, thank God. No wonder we were getting excited this morning as the men were playing their horns. Amen. Wondrous love. Amen. Magnificent love. Unexplainable love. Charles Wesley said it best when he said, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who sent to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that God should love one such as me? Demonstration of the Father's love. Let me go last to the defense of the Father's love. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Can I tell you just real brief about the fatted calf? Because that comes, that's a demonstration too. The father said, once we got shoes on you and we got a ring on your hand and we've got a robe on your shoulders, he said, we're going to celebrate. He said, you were dead, now you're alive. You were lost and now you're found. He said, we're going to take that calf that, it's the fatted one, you know, it's the special one. It's the one that we've been saving and and preparing and, and getting ready for just such an occasion. He said, we're going to kill that fatted calf, and we're going to be merry. We're going to have a celebration. The Bible tells us that every time a sinner repents, that the angels in heaven stop everything, and they rejoice. I love that old hymn that said, there's a new name written down in glory. And, oh, it's mine. Praise God, it's mine. Amen. The, The angels rejoice. When one man, one woman, one boy, one girl, one teenager kneels at an old-fashioned mourner's bench and confesses their sins, repents, turns their face towards Christ, the angels of heaven stop everything and say, Hey, another one's come home! Well, you ain't heard music. That was good music, fellas. That was really good music this morning. But these guys don't got nothing on the angels. Amen. When they lift their trumpets, amen. What, what it's going to be like for that angelic band of perfected beings uh, to sing the praises of God's glory and God's grace uh, and the merits of Calvary. Hallelujah. One of these days, uh, I'm going to listen in on that. Let me go on to the defense of the Father's grace. You know, the older son wasn't too happy about all this. He didn't like any of it. Just like the scribes and the Pharisees. They didn't like Jesus eating with sinners. They didn't like it. He receives sinners and eateth with them. The Lord help us. So the older son, he wouldn't even come in. He's standing outside. He sent a servant in to find out what was going on. And the father came out and entreated him. And said, now son, listen, your, your brother, your brother was lost. Now he's found. He was dead. Now he's alive. And he said, it was necessary that we should eat and make merry. Isn't it interesting the language of this boy? He said, he said, your son. He's, he's no longer my brother, you know. My wife does that sometimes. She says, uh, your boy needs help. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, he's mine now. <laughs> I thought he was ours. Your daughter needs help. You need to sit down with her. You know, all in good fun. But this boy is not fun and he's serious. Your son. I've disowned him. I've stayed by the stuff. You've never given me a kid that we should make merry with my friends. And you've killed for him the fatted calf. And he wasted your living, his inheritance, with riotous living. You know, I think 
If there's anything that this teaches us about the grace of God and the Father of grace is that God is willing to defend how he treats poor, lost, dirty, rotten, wretched sinners at the judgment. Because he has found a way to completely forgive without lowering the standard in any way. He sent his only begotten son who lived a sinless life, who died a perfect death, who was raised triumphantly to take back the life that he had lived. And he now is at the right hand of the Father to make intercession. God found a way. God designed a way. He enacted a plan whereby he could forgive a sinner, not on their merits, not on their righteousness, but on the righteousness and the merits of his only begotten son who took our place and was our substitute and died our death and suffered our penalty, took upon himself the, re- the consequence of our own rebellion against the holy God so that he could bring us into fellowship with himself without sacrificing the requirements and the demands of his justice in any way. I, I think, if, if, if I understand this right, I think I can almost imagine what the day of judgment is going to be like. And I'll just illustrate briefly. I see in my mind, I see a man. And that man is very old. He's got a long beard. And he's carrying in his right hand a, a rod that in his lifetime was very unique. And that man is coming before the throne of God and the Lamb of God is sitting there in all of his holiness to cast judgment. To either say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, prepared for you from the foundation of the world, or depart from me, ye cursed and everlasting fire. And this man comes to the throne and he's all alone and suddenly the angels begin to turn the books. And the angel that's in charge finds the M's. And Satan is there and suddenly he, he leaps from his lurking place and he says, God, you can't let this man into heaven. This man is a murderer. God's not even listening. All he wants to know is, it's, is, is the name in the book. And the angel is looking because the angel knows who he is. And he gets to the M's, down to the M's and the M's and the M's and the M's. He says, I'm getting close. And he finds M-O-O-S-E-S, Moses. Yes! Yes, he said, Jesus, his name's in the book. And the Lord Jesus says, Moses, I know you murdered a man, but it's all under the blood. It's all been forgotten. You're separated from it. It'll never haunt you again. Moses, come on in. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I see I see a woman. And she's dragging behind her a very long rope. And it is scarlet in color. And she comes before the throne of God. And if I understand the book of Hebrews chapter 11 correctly, she's standing there and she's a little nervous as she remembers the old haunts. All of those horrible memories of the things that she had done with her body. And the angel is looking through the book. Jesus is waiting. And all of a sudden, Satan leaps from his lurking place. And he says, oh, oh, I know this woman. I know who she is. He said, Jesus, you cannot let this woman into your holy heaven. This woman is a prostitute. This woman is a harlot. This woman is a great sinner. Jesus isn't listening. All he wants to know is, is her name in the book. 
And the angel's looking. He knows who she is. And he's down in the R's. And it doesn't take him long at all to find R-A-H-A-B. And he says, Jesus, Rahab's name's in the book. And Jesus says, Rahab, come on in. Well done. Your sins are under the blood. You've been forgiven. They've been separated from you as far as the east is from the west. Well done. You've won. You've finished the race. You put your faith in me. You looked away from yourself. You found there was grace. There was a sufficiency in the cross. Come on in, Rahab. I see a man coming before the Lord. He's all alone. He's unique. He's very different. You can tell just by looking at him that he's a very strong man. One of the strongest men that had ever lived. In his lifetime, he could pick up the gates of an entire city and put them on his shoulder and take them out and set them on a hill. In his lifetime, he could take the jawbone of a donkey and, and kill a thousand men. But he disgraced himself. He left his faith. He forgot his vow. He thought little things didn't matter. And he's standing there now before the throne of God. And Satan leaps from his lurking place and says, Oh, Jesus, I know this man very well. I witnessed on many occasions where he sinned against your law. He broke his vow. He did things that you, you, well, you can't let a man into heaven like that. But the Lord's not listening. All he wants to know is, is this man's name in the book of life. And the angel knows who it is. And the angel's looking. And he's over in the S's. And he gets down there to S-A. Oh, yes, S-A-M. P-S. Oh, yes, Samson's name's in the book. If I understand the book of Hebrews chapter 11, he's in there as a role model of an individual who at the last moment in his last prayer, in his last act, said, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I've failed. I've messed up. I've ruined my life. I've disgraced your name. But is there grace for me at the last hour? And he's over there in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. I don't think God would put a sinner in Hebrews chapter 11. I don't think God would put a role model for us in Hebrews chapter 11 if he wasn't a role model. And I believe there's people like Samson that at the last hour, though they've backslidden, though they've ruined, though they've squandered, though they've wasted and they've nothing to offer God, they can't serve another day in His kingdom. They can't walk another mile for His glory, but they can do the last moment. They can do the last hour. They can look up and say, I believe the grace of God is sufficient for me. I believe the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient for me. And they look up and reach up and God comes in saving power and sanctifying power. And Samson's name was in the book. I wonder as Sister Penny slips to the piano and plays that song coming home this morning for us. As I try to, in the final part of the message this morning, briefly tell you a story about a boy, just like this prodigal son, a true story of a boy who left home. A boy who had squandered his relationship with his parents. A boy, maybe like this young man right here, about his age who one day said to his father, I don't want your rules. I won't listen to your rules. I'm not going to submit myself and take this. And he struck his father. Knocked his father down in front of the door and stepped across his body. A few belongings on his back. Got on the bus and went to another city. After several months of living in that city, his money gone, his friends gone. Nowhere to turn. 
nowhere to look, destitute, homeless, and helpless, he came to his senses. Began to realize what he had done. How serious, how serious his rebellion and his sin was. And that boy got on a train and started back towards home. As the story has been told down through the years, an old evangelist in God's sovereignty just happened to be traveling on that same train. He walked up and down that aisle several times. He saw that boy. He said the boy's face, his countenance was fallen. It's the saddest boy he'd ever seen in his life. The boy was all alone, forlorn. Evangelist could tell something was wrong with the, with the young man. He said, son, can I, can I speak with you? Can I sit beside you? He said, you're carrying a heavy load. Carrying a heavy load, son. He said, is, is, I'm a preacher. Maybe I can help. I'd like to listen to your story. Oh, the boy said, preacher, I wish you would. He said, a number of months ago, he said, I left home. He said, I got an argument with my father. I struck him in the face. I stepped over his body. I thought the big city and that the freedom that I wanted and that the life I wanted to live. And he said, I thought it would satisfy, but it hasn't satisfied, preacher. He said, I'm heartbroken and homesick and I'm destitute, homeless, and I need help. He said, preacher, I'm on this train and I'm headed towards home. He said, I've actually written my father a letter. I addressed it to my father and to my mother. And I told my father and I told my mother that I was sorry. I was sorry how I treated them. I was sorry how I disrespected them. I was sorry for how I abused them, the pain I've caused them. He said, preacher, I, I didn't have time to wait for a reply. My money was gone. So I have time to wait for a reply to hear whether my dad and my mom would forgive me and let me come back home. He said, I told them in the letter that I'd be on this train. I told them I'd be on this train and I'd arrive at their station at such and such an hour. He said, preacher, the truth of the matter is, we live. I grew up beside these train tracks. He said, preacher, we're getting close. In the letter, I told my mother and I told my father that if they would forgive me, that they should just tie one white rag in the old apple tree train side and I'd be looking out the window preacher and if I saw the white rag in the old apple tree I'd know that they had forgiven me and I'd get off the train but preacher if there's, no, if there's nothing in the apple tree then I'm, I'm going to stay on the train it's not okay to go home he said I don't know where I'm going to go I don't know where I'm going to get off I don't know where I'm going to live or how I'll live. He said, preacher, the truth of the matter is, I'm so nervous. I'm so sick. He said, I can't even bring myself to look out the window. He said, oh, son, I'll be your eyes for you. I'll look for you. Oh, he said, wouldn't you, preacher? He said, look now. He said, we're, we're just about a mile and a quarter from where I lived and where I grew up. He said, now, preacher, what you... And begin to describe what the preacher should be seeing. And you'll see a fence. And you'll see my neighbor boy, Tommy's dog. And, and he began to describe it all. The preacher said, oh, yes, son, I'm seeing. I, I see exactly what you mean. The boy became very nervous, very agitated. He said, now, preacher, don't miss it. He said, there's just one old tree, and it's really close to the train tracks. Look for that tree, preacher, and tell me. Don't miss it, preacher. Just look and see. Is there a white flag? The preacher gasped as it came into sight. He said, oh, son. Oh, son, he said, I do wish you would look for yourself. He said, son, he said, there is a white flag. He said, a white flag. He said, in fact, he said, they got one hanging from every limb. 
He said on the one side of the apple tree, there's a little gray-haired daddy. And on the other side of the apple tree, there's a little white-haired mama. And they both got them a big white bed sheet. And they're trying to stop this train with every ounce of strength that they have. Friend, I'll tell you this morning, it's not an apple tree. But it's an old rugged cross. And it stands on a hill this morning called Calvary. And God the Father is on one side. And God the Holy Ghost is on the other side. And they're waving the white flag this morning saying, Get off the train. Get off the train. All is forgiven. All is well. Come home to Father's house. I forgive you. I'll pardon you. I'll take you back in. You're my son. You're my daughter. And if you'll come home, I'll put shoes on your feet. I'll put a robe on your shoulders. I'll put a ring on your hand. And we'll kill the fatted calf. I wonder as we stand together this morning across this crowd who would be the first one to have enough courage to step out and to meet me at this mourner's bench and say, I'm tired of living the life of a sinner. I'm tired of living the life of a rebel. I'm coming home this morning. I've got a heavenly father who loves me and is concerned about me this morning. And you want to be saved. You need to hear his words. Come home this morning. I wonder who this morning would step out and meet me at this mourner's bench and pray with me the sinner's prayer and say, oh Lord Jesus, be merciful to me a sinner. Come into my heart and forgive me for my transgressions. Make my black heart white. Wash my sins whiter than snow. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. That's all.